All right, will you open your Bibles to the book of Luke? Luke chapter 2. And hopefully all of you have sermon notes by now. Luke chapter 2. Tonight we're going to be celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And Luke 2 is the only passage in Scripture that gives the details. Gives the details with the day that Jesus was born, with the um, trip to Bethlehem, the account of him being laid in a manger. It's Matthew chapter 1 that gives the background on the conception. Matthew chapter 1 tells us a little bit of how he got the name. It's interesting when you come to the account here in Luke chapter 2, you don't know that his name is Jesus for a long time. I was even like looking through it and on the video that I did for the online service, I realized I can't remember where Jesus was even called Jesus. It's not all the way until verse 21 that he gets his name in this account in Luke chapter 2. But as you are turning there, put a marker, though, in Luke chapter 2 and go back to Psalm 30 because Psalm 30 gives us a great foundation for what we're going to be looking at tonight Psalm 30 has one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture. I wouldn't even say one most famous verses, because it's half a verse, really. And I'll point that out when we get there. Psalm 30 is a psalm that truly epitomizes what we look for on Christmas Eve. We look for out-of-darkness light, right? That's why we have a candle night candle light service, even with the electronic candles, even if hopefully everybody has their candle by now. But Psalm 30 is a psalm that depicts David going through a dark time. You might be surprised when you look at this psalm that this is a psalm dedicated to God when David opens up his house. Think about this. Why in the world would David use this psalm to dedicate his home? Not the temple, but his home. And I think this so much epitomizes those who walk with God's life. Let's just pick up in Psalm 30, verse 1, and it says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, verse 2 says, I cried to you for help. And you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, and you have kept me alive, that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And there's that key line. The idea of weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And for whatever occasion this was specifically written for, David was going through a dark time, and he looked to a new day. Now, it's interesting, all the pictures, the idea of darkness coming into one's life and depicting a time when you're discouraged and you don't know that there is hope and that... The picture of night brings about that darkness. Now, can God deliver at 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night? Absolutely. But it's the idea that 
new light coming in, a new day, is when the shout of joy comes in the morning. And it's not just a shout of praise, it's a shout of joy. Because God has taken David through a time of incredible depression, hardship. And now, when he thinks that there will be no joy, there is joy. And he says in verse 6, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Because now in his position, he's saying, there's nothing's going to take me away from God. I know that God comes through. He says, oh, Lord, by your favor, you've made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O oh Lord, I called, and to the Lord, I made supplication. Did you catch that? That David called to God, and God was silent. That God has taken David through this circumstance. David has gone through a time when he's wondered, where is God? Which is an occasion, I think, that many of us as believers can relate to. So verse 7, you hid your face. I was dismayed to you, O Lord. Verse 8, I called, and the Lord, I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? David had much despair. He looked as if death was going to come upon him. And then he says in verse 10, hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I love that line, forever. Because there's a sense where it's just like, this is an eternal reality. I realize that I will be with you forever. Remember, he's the same guy that writes Psalm 23 that ends, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David recognizes that God has come through for him. The key word is joy. And joy is something I want us to have tonight and to have something that we incredibly embrace always in a world that is very dark. Last Sunday, I preached on the mother of Jesus, Mary, and her praise. And it was interesting how joy was the key element there. We're going to see whether it's in this psalm that we just read or even the passage that we're going to, and you can turn back to Luke 2, that joy is a key element. It's the emotion that we have to have when we think of the birth of Jesus Christ. I want you to go forward always and have that emotion. It is the emotion I want you to leave with this study. It's emotion, though, that is not just something of feelings. It is tied to facts. It is tied to reality. Look, the psalmist had the joy not just because he was delivered, but because he believed that God would always be there. And he acknowledged it, and I want us to be always acknowledging it. Now the question begs, why would God bring one of his children through such a dark time? There's nothing in the psalm that talked about David doing something wrong. I believe theologically tonight, I want us to always remember this, that God allows darkness into our world, even as believers still. Sin brings judgment. And when we are people that sometimes, even in the spirit uh, of being a believer, sin, the, the scriptures talk about how discipline comes to us. And us who are all believers could say, yes, there's been times when I could see that God has had his hand on me and he's disciplined me. Sin makes us realize that ultimately we're never 
guaranteed anything good. One of the darkest times in someone's life ever was the person of Job. You go back and you study Job's life, and there's just a truth that is echoed through the 42 chapters there that Job was a good guy. But God wanted him to be recognizing that as a human, and you have sinned, and you say, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Even for Job, there was the reality, Job, you need to realize, I don't owe you anything, was God was saying. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job never got an answer for all that he went through, but he needed to come back and be humble. And all of us need to understand that God for whatever reason, sometimes even takes his most faithful people through the darkest of times just so they learn that truth. We also realize that we're in this world. Sin ruins everything. Sin is constantly coming into our lives. The darkness continues to move forward. And sometimes you just want to scream because you look at this world and you say, will it ever stop being so dark so evil and on top of that then i say a fourth reason is is that god wants us to never be someone that is at peace in this world you know i have talked to so many faithful believers that are in their 70s and 80s and 90s and they've all echoed the same truth that it never gets easier never gets easier and there is a reality that I want to continually keep before you on this night, that this is not our home. For us who are believers in Jesus Christ, this isn't a place of permanent light. The only time that we're ever going to have permanent light is when Jesus Christ returns. And, and, and so I want us to remember this truth. God brings us into dark times to understand not just our own sin, but how sin has ruined everything and to keep us grounded in that. And if you expect an easy life as a believer, then you're just not even like reading the Psalms. Godly writers who went through pain but expected God to one day help and one day to help permanently, and that's what we long for. It's only when we understand the dark, all these different factors, how they all operate, that we really appreciate any light that comes into our world and how much we yearn for the permanent light, for the presence of Jesus Christ, the true light that has come into the world. Remember this famous verse from Jesus, John 8, 12, it says, where Jesus is speaking, says, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Tonight, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that in your life, when dark was the darkest, And I would state that theologically, I would believe that the darkest your life should ever have been is when you realized for the first time that the Holy Spirit was working on your heart and you were convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you realized, oh my goodness, it isn't just that my life is messed up. I owe a debt to God that I cannot pay. I can remember that so vividly. There's a reality of the incredible trepidation, that incredible fear Like, wait a second, I can't fix this. I cannot fix the payment for my sin. I can't give money, I can't light a candle, I can't attend church. I am in trouble. And there comes the realization of why I needed to embrace Christ. And when you do, then light comes into your world. 
But when you come to that precipice and you understand how bad your sin situation is, and as they say, it's darkest right before the dawn, I could say personally for everyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ, that has to be your testimony. Now, other situations and other tragedies can come in, but the reality is, is when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what happens to you on this earth, you know that one day Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And so you could go through any type of dark times, but the ultimate is when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's my hope that everyone here could say, that is my account, that I realized how much I needed the light of Jesus into my life. I know that darkness brings pain, And again, like in Psalm 30, God allows it to remind us that the world lacks his light. Tonight, I can promise you, though, to take away the darkness, to come to the joy of the the morning from the new day, that we come to a passage in Luke chapter 2 that I believe gives us a foundation for always having joy no matter what we face. And like I said, a true, genuine joy. So if you have your Bibles open, you have your your notes, your sermon notes. Let me just read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The context of this is is that we have seen all the details regarding the background, regarding the birth of John the Baptist in Luke 1, as well as the account with Mary coming to her being being given the the birth of the child, I mean the baby in her womb, as we recounted that in her incredible praise. So right after Zacharias' prophecy and praise as well for the birth of his son, Luke writes, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary while she was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she had given birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. If you have your sermon notes, as we look at the birth of Jesus and brings joy the very first thing I want you to understand is that this story is rooted in truth. This is just a historical picture here, and I want you to realize the passage that we have just read has an emphasis of trying to tell you that these events really did happen. We are not reading a story about a Cinderella who was delivered by a fairy godmother or a story about a little wooden boy named Pinocchio who magically got his wish to become a human being. We are looking, no, at a true account of when a baby was born. I know I put the word story up there. It's an account. It's a, it's a true situation. And this baby has changed everything. What I want to emphasize here is the truth of this passage. And just realize that as we look at this tonight, this isn't make-believe. This isn't a story. If you were going to make a story up, you would make some slip-ups. And when we go through this account... We, we continually think, find things that are factual. Things that are factual. First of all, when we look at the decree went out from Caesar Augustus. This was the Caesar who was the adopted child of Julius Caesar. 
after Julius, when, right before Julius Caesar died, he wrote a will. And he said that his adopted child would take over for him. We know historically that this is, an, is the one who was called Octavian. He will, he will rule until 14 AD. Secular people can go to Wikipedia and look up, was there really an Octavian? Was there really a Caesar Augustus? And yes, this isn't some leader that is like an evil king, an evil witch, the wicked witch of the West that doesn't exist. This was really a genuine person, and he did rule, and he was the one who was Caesar during this time. We believe this is about anywhere from 6 to 4 B.C., and it deals with the census, a census that was to be taken of the earth, a census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Once again, facts prove that Quirinius was somebody who ruled over Syria. Now, here's where it kind of gets interesting, and I'm not going to try and resolve it tonight, but I want to tell you that it's interesting that, that sometimes people want to challenge the historical reality of this account, and they'll come in and they'll, they'll say, we can't find records of the census, and then lo and behold, we have found that there's records of the census. We have found that there has been pretend, potentially two census that, censuses that were held. There was also two reigns of Quirinius, which I find fascinating. And I just know that, that Luke doesn't tell us those details, but he does tell us about a person that is, again, real. And that's what I want you to see. And there is a reality that a census was held. And think about the fact, again, all we're trying to do is get you stories to understand that this is rooted in truth, actual events, not a myth, not make-believe. I'll never forget being in seminary and reading some of the historical stories that people would give in other religions. And yet, they would always be something that could be found out to be inaccurate, made up. And this isn't something that's made up. Our joy that comes from the account of Jesus Christ is not based upon a puff story where I just tell you, be joyous. It's rooted in the fact that this really did occur, that one day this Jesus was on earth and will pay the penalty for man's sin. So verse 2, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So the idea here of doing this makes sense. I don't have all the details of how the census was working. But, so I just have to take now Luke's account. But when we come to verse 4 and it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Guess what? It just oozes of historical facts. There is a place called Galilee. It still exists today. There is a place called Nazareth. It still exists today, and I was there. And so there was a Judea. There is a Bethlehem. There is a David. And when people try to say there isn't a David, we continue to find archaeological evidence that says, yes, there was a David, and there is a Bethlehem, and there is a kingly line of being in David's house and family. So you could look at verse 4 and recognize everything in there is of truth. It's not made up. You could go to some of those places today. Again, you know, where Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz goes to this make-believe land. You can't go there, but you can go to Bethlehem. You can go to Nazareth. You can go to Judea. You can go to Galilee. 
And so verse 5 says, in order to register him along with Mary while she was engaged to him and was with child. That word engaged there, did you catch it? A lot of times that slips by. That is a word that all of a sudden you might say, wait a second, I thought they were supposed to be married. And I think I did some research on this word. I think a better translation is, is that, they, that, that the word there could have been his wife. Um, in this Old Testament Septuagint, whenever this word is used, it was often used for wife. And so the reason they're traveling together is because they are husband and wife. We saw in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph was going to divorce her, and the angel comes and convinces him to stay married, and it says he took her as his wife. Now, we're not given the details of how long their engagement was, and we understand the whole betrothal period. We don't know exactly how that occurred. But some people want to say, well, you got a contradiction there between Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 2 because it says it took him as his wife, and now you're just saying they're engaged. And what in the world are they doing? Traveling. Well, you know, worst case scenario, if I'm wrong on this, I would still say maybe Mary's family is with them. But the idea is, I think, that there is good cause that you can translate that word wife. All right? So just want you to know that. You can put a little footnote there. And she was with child. And so they come to, they come to Bethlehem. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And I want to just point out factually, you know, we love the whole Christmas Eve story. The idea of Jesus being born sometime in the night. And Mary and Joseph are coming to the inn, and it's, you know, all packed at, late at night. Well, <laughs> I don't know how this is often missed, but they're there for days, people. <laughs> they're there for days. And, and so the idea is the days were completed for her to give birth. So they're there. They, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So the idea is there's no account of them necessarily getting there late at night. And some of you might want to think, where did this whole idea of um, midnight come in? That that was a secular view that babies were born at night, and I want to tell you that a certain church took with it and ran with it, and that's why they have literally midnight masses. Midnight masses because they thought babies were born at midnight, hence the idea of the midnight mass. And Jesus, I want you to know, could have been born at 10 a.m. in the morning, 12 in the afternoon. Some of this idea of him being born at night is tied to the angels who appear at night and the shepherds come at night. Well, I've had the privilege of being there on the days that some of our women have had babies, and I'm usually not allowed to come the first hour. (laughs) Hour too. I think even the angels would have some wisdom to say, hey, baby's born, give her some time, then let's go out and get visitor. But that's just, <laughs> let's go speculation here on my part. But my point is, is there is no specific time frame given here. And when it says in verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, yeah, it's affirming the fact that she was a virgin. A virgin again one who'd never had sexual relations. And it was emphasized in Luke 1 in our study on Sunday. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths. And I've done studies on this in the past, and I'm not prepared to go deep into that, but there is maybe some, some symbolism there for how the child was wrapped. And laid him in a manger. And that word manger does mean trough. And I point that out because of what I'm going to state next. Because what I'm going to say next is it says there was no room for them in the inn. 
That word for in is only used three times in the New Testament. It's a Greek word that every other time, which would have been two other times, it's used for when Jesus was getting his disciples ready for the Last Supper. And he takes them, and when you go to Luke's gospel and you go to Mark's gospel, they say, go to the where? To the upper room. And the word that's used there is the exact same word here. My thought, more likely here, since Joseph, remember, is coming to his family. He's in the line. It's always forgotten that Joseph, historically, was in line to be king, okay? Right? Because when we look at the genealogies in Matthew, and you go through the idea of who are in the line of Abraham and David, Joseph you can imagine this one who would have had such prominence within the Jewish people. He comes into Jerusalem, and they're saying, uh, I mean, comes into Bethlehem, and they're like, we don't care for you. You're with child, your wife's with child. You know, maybe they're thinking, you know, you know there's this, you know, thought that she's um, having child with, before they're officially, you know, been through their ceremony. Uh, but people, there's more likelihood that they are telling us more what happened is that when Joseph comes to the city, there was no room in the upper room for them. There was no room within a house, and in the house they would have a guest room. And from what I've been able to study is, is that the upper room would be, mo- the second floor is where the majority of the family would live. Down below, they would still have quarters. And because they would also bring their animals in at night, it had stalls. It did have mangers in, in it. And it's more likely that all this is trying to tell us is, is that Mary and Joseph were in a home that they were on the bottom floor. That's it. And, you know, again, Bethlehem was a small community. Highly also unlikely it had a holiday inn. highly unlikely from what I've been able to discern that it had a Motel 6 or Motel 8 or whatever they are, you know. It's more likely that you look at this and he says they laid him in a manger, meaning they put him in the trough because there was no room in the upper room. You don't know if grandma was there or someone else was there and there was no way that they could have taken that person out of the upper room. All it's saying is that Mary was probably placed on the bottom floor where the animals were, which was going to make easy access for the shepherds to come later when they do come. So all of this is just rooted in truth. Now, how does that give you joy? I want you to see a passage now that I hope from now on you'll always tie it to this. Do You know, later on, back around going forward in about 90 AD, the apostle John is writing. And if you'll turn to 1 John chapter 1, and as John is writing the church, he is writing about how to have joy. Aren't we talking about joy tonight? And I don't know if you've ever caught it, and I hope now, forever now, you always will, that when John writes his book that he's trying to get people to know the genuine from the fake, and one of the things he wants people to know is the true gospel. And He's going to say this in verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Our joy, our elation. 
we who are saved are, are, are people who are joyous, but we want you to be joyous too. And what is it all based on? Well, it's based on truth. Verses 1 to 3 is all about the idea is that Jesus is not a story from a make-believe perspective. Look at these words now. Verse 1, what was from the beginning, and I believe that beginning is not the beginning of creation, but the beginning of his ministry to stay consistent with what follows. What was from the beginning, what we've heard. So we actually heard this one speak. We've seen with our eyes, we've looked with our, who we've looked at, and we've touched with our hands concerning what? The word of life. The word of life is an expression for Jesus, the one that was born, the one who ministered and presents the gospel. And he says, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you. Now he calls it the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So that's Jesus who was with the Father and was in appearance to us. And everything he's trying to say is we've touched, we felt, we've seen. This is true, people. And he says, what we have seen in verse 3, he says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship, koinonia, be part of our team, be part of our group, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And it's with that idea that it's trying to say is the story is rooted in truth. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete, so that you would too believe and have faith in Jesus Christ because this is not a made-up story. It's all true. And when you have your dark times and when you have your difficulties and when you go through hardship, even as a believer, how important is this to remember this is all true? That's why this is special. But let's also go on and understand this. Go back to Luke 2. And I want you to understand as we come back to the story, then all of a sudden, as it progresses, it says this. It says... Now, in the same region, in verse 8, there were shepherds staying in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord stood around them, and they were terribly frightened. Now, historically, we now know shepherds were often in those fields. We know that often those shepherds supplied the sheep for sacrifices at the temple. But who these shepherds were, I can't tell you historically who they are, so I can tell you that they are rooted in truth. But an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And again, I can't tell you who this angel is. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. The word good news becomes gospel. Look at that. Of what? Great joy. Great joy, which will be for all the people. All the people. And one author said that, you know, maybe he's thinking initially just of the Jews, but maybe it's a forward, fast thinking of, hey, this is for every human being, which we would hold. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whoever should believe should have eternal life. And he says in verse 11, for today in the city of David, there's been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. He's Christ the Lord. And what I want to do is just quickly tell you why. Here is why this is special. It's all in verse 11. First and foremost, look at right from the birth. Do you ever catch it? There's going to be three titles that are given. He's called Savior, right from the birth. He's a little baby, you know, maybe hours or yeah, half a day he's, he's been on this earth. And the angel says, here's born for you a Savior. The word Savior means deliverer. Jesus Christ is the liver, the one who rescues. It also connotes the idea of one who rescues. 
This is the idea ultimately of the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Adam and Eve, right? That someone of his seed would crush the serpent. In Moses' life, in, I think it's Deuteronomy 18, he talks about there will be a deliverer raised up like me. We now know that the deliverer is Jesus. The rescuer is Jesus. And we know that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could be rescued from an eternal damnation. That when the light was ever darkest, this one has come and now offered up that if you place your faith in him, you can have eternal life. As John said in 1 John, we, we proclaim eternal life. No matter what happens to you on this earth, it does not end your existence. You will have eternal life. You will never, ever, ever have to go through darkness again once you pass from this world. And it's all secure. Now, I wish I could tell you that all darkness was taken out of your life tonight, but I can't. But the reality of it is, is if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you recognize him as the ultimate deliverer, the one who would pay the penalty for man's sin, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, then yes, you have incredible joy. The angels are crying out, there's joy because you have a savior. You have one that will save you from the penalty of your sins. Second, you get this title here. He gets called the Christ. Look at that. Look at verse 11. Right from birth, he was the Christ. The Christ. It's the word anointed one doesn't appear often in the Old Testament. Like Daniel 7 is the first time it appears. It only appears like two or three times. But we recognize that when we come to the New Testament, the very essence of who the Christ is has been built up from the fact that Isaiah wrote of one, a child being born, first of a virgin, Isaiah 9, chapter 6, that the government would be on his shoulders and the end of his peace would be non-ending that this one would be the one who is the deliverer who is the messiah the anointed one who will bring victory over all enemies this child right from the start there was no wonder like what's he going to grow up to be like what path is he going to take is he going to go here is he going to go there no right from the start you are decreed to be the savior you are decreed to be the messiah the one that when he was challenged by Peter, are you the Messiah? Or, or I don't know if it was Peter. Um, when he was challenged, like, are you the Messiah? It was very much yes. And, and the idea is, is that we now know that this one who came to earth, this baby, is the one that has vanquished all enemies. He's defeated Satan. You turn to passages like Hebrews chapter 2 that speaks of him defeating Satan and death. Because he is the Messiah. He's the one that has gotten victory. And we wait for his return so that all enemies of God would be vanquished and his true light would reign. It's so fascinating when you get to the end of the, gospel, the book of Revelation, how he brings an eternal light. A light for after weeping has lasted for the night, joy comes in the morning. We long for the new day when the Messiah is ruling and reigning. And finally, we see this title. He is Lord from birth. This is verse 11, who is Christ the Lord. The, Jesus is called Lord over 700 times in the New Testament. Over 700 times. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. 
It is at the heart of the gospel message that Romans chapter 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Lord means God master. There is, you know, understanding that sometimes people are called Lord in other situations, but when it's used of Jesus, it's clearly, I believe, in the context, something that you can support, that the overwhelming number of references would indicate that he is God. And right from the start, Jesus is identified as God come in the flesh. It is what distinguishes us from all other religions that want to say that Jesus was a man who became a God, which all the cults do. We need to realize that he came to earth. God came to earth, born of a virgin, so that he would ultimately would die, which I can still remember in the darkest time of my conversion and getting goosebumps when I realized, oh my goodness, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And how and what he went through as a human we, we recognize, and I'm, for time's sake, I just tell you Philippians chapter 2, it's called the great passage where it talks about how he set aside his deity. Incredible mystery. I can't tell you all the technical, technical aspects of it, but it's the reality of Philippians chapter 2 that says that one day every knee will bow to the one who is the Lord. And so we recognize on this night, right from the start, this one called Jesus Look, it's not up until verse 21, eight days after, does he finally get the name Jesus, that he is the one that is so special. And that is why on the night that we recognize when he was born, and whenever he was born, because we know that we don't know the exact date, but we have Christmas Eve services because one church thought, hey, babies are born at midnight, so let's celebrate as we go into the night. So on December 24th, not even December 25th, right? December 24th. But we recognize one day he came, and it was true when he came. And all these things, all these facts validate the fact that this isn't a made-up story. The birth of Jesus is one that brings joy. He brings light into a dark world. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's not just that God delivers at morning time. He can help you at 9 a.m. He can help you at 9 p.m. But Psalm 30 is a metaphor for how light is brought by God into our lives. And this is the ultimate light. It's a morning light or an evening light. God is just bringing light. And I don't know what darkness each of you are facing now, but one day Jesus will bring more light into the world and he'll wipe away every tear. Every believer, there is a reminder of when it was darkest for you and you came to faith when you recognized you were destined for hell. And you cried out in faith to have Jesus save you. Tonight is a good time to remember that. Because no matter what you're facing in life today, it's just always good to remember what Jesus came to do. He came to save. And so he is a special person. And I want you to think about other verses in Scripture. It's so amazing how many passages talk about Jesus coming and tie it to joy. Jesus said on the night before he was killed he said this in john 15 these things he spoke to his disciples so that you may have joy my joy may be in you and that your joy be made full jesus wants us to have joy while we're on this earth and i'm praying that all of you will tonight later in john 16 he says truly truly i say to you regarding his death you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will grieve but your grief will be turned to 
joy. Whenever a woman is labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy the child has been born in the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will tell you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Tonight, affirm that, that no one can take your joy from you. For Jesus, he himself, looked at what he was going to face, the hardships that he was going to face, the sacrifice he was going to make, but he did it for joy. Just one last verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The author of Hebrews, don't turn there, it says this, Jesus being the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did that not just for his own joy, but for our joy. And I'm hoping that tonight, all of you can just continue to embrace the light that's come in the world that's brought true joy. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for coming into the world. I'm hoping that tonight, as we go home to our homes and we reflect upon what the true day of Jesus' birth means, is that it is something that everyone here tonight will just always affirm that it isn't a story, it's true in the sense of being a made-up story, and that we'll always remember that the one who was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, placed in a manger, a feeding trough, was one who was the Savior, and he grew up to do just that. He was the Christ, and he grew up to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he was and is the Lord, and he proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. What joy we have now because of who he is and what he did. And as he himself said, no one can take that joy from us. May we continue to embrace it. In Jesus' name.